0: It's Your love that makes me see. It's Your word that comforts me. By Your blood, we have been saved. On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. We'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This past week, uh, myself and another man from the church spent uh, a couple of days at an expository preaching workshop, just trying to sharpen our skills in in that area. And then following that, we met a small group of men from our church down at Grace Community Church for the Shepherds Conference and uh, spent uh, three days there, not only having fellowship with one another, but sitting under the, the powerful preaching of, of God's Word, uh, being instructed, challenged, convicted, Uh And it was a a wonderful time with the men from the church and a wonderful time at the conference. And, you know, you go down to the conference already tired. And you go, I mean, at the workshop and then at the conference, you go from early in the morning till late at night. So you go tired, you come back even more tired. But you come back uh, spiritually refreshed and and renewed and encouraged and, and ready to continue in the fight. And so this morning, uh, Dr. Vodi Bachum uh, preached a sermon Wednesday night, and during his sermon and some of the things he said and an illustration he used uh, as he was doing that, my mind immediately went to John chapter six, and I've been mulling this over in my in my heart and mind since then. I had originally intended this morning on speaking from Second Timothy because that's what our expository workshop was on, and I thought, well, I've got all this work done, I might as well teach from Second Timothy, but uh, I just didn't think that's what the Lord had for me. And so this morning we're in John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 60 through 71. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, the last section there in John chapter 6. And so if you'll follow along as I read our text this morning, John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, beginning now in verse 60. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. In one of his parables, Jesus told about a farmer and the seed that he sowed. And, And the point of the parable was to impress upon us that whenever God's word is proclaimed, Whenever the seed of God's truth is sown, there will always be different responses. There is never a uniform response to the preaching of God's word or the proclamation of the gospel. And so it is here in our text in John 6 where John records for us two contrasting responses to Jesus' sermon. And when you drop in on a text like this, It is of critical importance to understand the context in which this passage takes place. And so look back uh, at the beginning of chapter 6. And in verse 1 we learn that Jesus had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And verse 2 says, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And you know the story. There were about... 5,000 people, not including women and children, so probably around 20,000 people. And Jesus performed one of his greatest miracles by feeding them all with five loaves and two fishes. And in verse 14 of chapter 6, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then we're told that when evening came, Jesus sent his disciples back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And as they were crossing, again, you know the story, there was a storm and Jesus came to them walking on the water. And immediately the boat was at, land, at the land to which they were going. And the next day the crowd, seeing that Jesus was gone, got into boats and, and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Look at verse 25 and 26. So they went seeking Jesus, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then Jesus launched into his discourse on the bread of life. And in his sermon, Jesus presented himself as the one sent from the Father, the the true bread from heaven, the bread of God, the bread that came down from heaven, the bread of life. And building on that metaphor, he said in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that, of course, was a shocking statement. But that's exactly what Jesus intended. In saying the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, Jesus was looking forward to his death on the cross where he would literally give his human flesh as a sacrifice for sin. In verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now obviously they were thinking Jesus meant it literally. But you see, they should have known what he was talking about because the Lord had already told them what he meant by eating. Eating, coming, looking, all mean believing. I mean, he had already defined the analogy in verses 35 and 40, but they completely missed the point. And they begin to argue among themselves. You know, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus was aware they were struggling with his words. But notice in answering these people who are in an uproar over his teaching, Jesus did not tone down the teaching to make it more palatable. Jesus did not back down from what he had said, but rather he doubled down. He affirmed it in the strongest possible language. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. You know, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, that is, if you don't believe in me and accept my sacrifice for sin, you have no life in you. They might have physical life, but they would not have the spiritual life, eternal life that Jesus came to give all those given to Him by the Father." And then to reinforce the point, Jesus restated it in the form of a promise. Look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he went on to say, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And verse 58 seems to summarize all that Jesus said in the previous verses. And He is the bread that came down from heaven and He is superior to the manna the Father's aid in the wilderness. And that bread was only of temporary value. By contrast, Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven and whoever feeds on this bread will not die. They will live forever. That is, they will have eternal life. And Jesus is simply saying, it's not enough to merely come and listen. It's not enough to admire and to get some information. You have to eat. You have to appropriate. You have to receive me. You must believe in me as your only hope of salvation, that I am God's provision for your deepest need. I've come down from heaven as the bread of God to feed and to nourish your souls, to give you myself, to give you life, everlasting, abundant life. But you must believe in me. I mean, Jesus was calling for a total commitment from them. He wasn't looking for just a casual relationship. He was calling them to a self-denying, self-abandoning reliance and trust in Him alone as the only hope of salvation, the only way to eternal life. Jesus' hearers felt this was asking far too much. And John records for us now the reaction and the responses to the teaching of Jesus. First of all, in verses 60 to 66, we have the response of those John calls disciples. And secondly, in verses 67 to 71, we have the response of the 12, Jesus' hand-picked disciples. And as we will see, the same sermon produced two diametrically opposing responses. To the one Jesus' words were, as the Apostle Paul said, the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. When Jesus had finished speaking, John tells us now in verse 60, if you'll notice, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Many of his disciples, it said. this is the group of more or less regular followers of Jesus. All of those who seem to accept what he had been saying and doing and had been following him around Galilee. However, though they are called disciples, this does not imply they were true followers of Jesus. In other words, true believers. The term disciple refers merely to a follower or learner someone who attaches himself to a teacher as a student or learner, but it does not imply anything about the disciples' sincerity or devotion. And so it does not mean they were true believers. And there were probably hundreds of them in Galilee, if not thousands. And the works and and miracles of Jesus were compelling. And the number of these followers was growing larger every day, but on this occasion... On this occasion, when Jesus' sermon was over, these disciples were less than pleased. In fact, they were troubled when they heard it. Two things in particular troubled them. First of all, Jesus' words about being the bread of life who came down from heaven, that he was God in human flesh and the only way to eternal life was through him. Therefore, they must come to him, believe in him, submit to him as Lord and Savior, the one they must depend on for eternal life. That troubled them. And secondly, what troubled them was that no one one can come to him unless the Father draws him. They did not like hearing that sin had so affected them that nothing they could do in and of themselves would make them right with God and acceptable to God. They did not like hearing that they were utterly helpless and completely dependent upon the sovereign grace and mercy of God to draw them to Himself. They reacted badly to being told that they could not earn or in any way merit salvation from God. And people are probably more offended by that than anything else in the gospel. You know, people will say things along the lines of, well, you know, I like this about Jesus, and and I like that about Jesus, but I don't like this idea that salvation is all of God. You know, that He seems to be telling me I can do nothing to make myself right and acceptable to God. Well, of course people don't like that. Because the gospel offends our pride. The gospel strikes at the very heart of our pride, which, which says we're not really that bad. But the gospel comes along and declares that we are that bad. In fact, it tells us that we are worse than we could ever imagine. That, that we are sinful to the core of our being, and we cannot make ourselves right with God or come to God, however we please and whenever we choose. You see, until we are brought to the place of seeing our utter sinfulness and that in us no good thing dwells that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to make us right with God until we are brought to discover our utter helplessness before God the gospel will just offend or go right over our heads. And so many of those who professed to be Jesus' disciples when they heard this sermon said this is a hard saying. And who can listen to it? And the word translated here as "hard" is the word from which we get our English word "sclerosis," and it means stiff, dried out, inflexible, hard. And in the figurative sense, it's it's used for something that is harsh, unpleasant, objectionable, offensive. And here in our text, it does not mean hard, as in this is hard to understand. It's not that it's too hard to comprehend, though certainly it is a deep saying. What it means here is, this is hard to accept. What they're complaining about is, is this is too hard to swallow. This is too hard to accept. This is absolutely offensive. I mean, Jesus' words were intolerable. Too distasteful for them to receive. And what they're saying is, who can stand and even listen to such offensive teaching? I mean, they were deeply offended by his teaching about salvation. They were disgusted, it's probably better. Why? Because their hearts were full of rebellion. You see, as long as they thought Jesus was a source of healing and free food and possibly even deliverance from Roman oppression, these self serving disciples flocked to him by the thousands. But when he demanded they acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their sin, and commit themselves to him as the only source of salvation and eternal life, they were offended. And they refused to accept his teaching, and they were grumbling about it. (laughs) You know, people, people often like to think if there's no favorable response to the message preached, it's because the message wasn't clear enough. Or it wasn't given in a spirit of love. And if Jesus were the preacher, well, then everyone would respond favorably to the message. Or if the Apostle Paul were preaching at Calvary Chapel, there would be much better results well, I'm pretty certain there would be some better results. But I can assure you, it would not be due to the fact that when a man gives a clear presentation of the gospel and gives it in a greater spirit of love, that there will automatically be a greater response. I want you to think for a moment, who's preaching here in this text? Who's preaching here? Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself. I mean, whoever gave the gospel message more clearly than he did? I mean, no one would debate that. Whoever spoke out of a greater sense of divine love than Jesus? I mean, he was love incarnate. And what was the response to his preaching? He was despised, rejected, and crucified. See, these people were responding to the message, not of some local teacher... They were responding to the message of Jesus Himself. You see, as long as they didn't really understand Him, they stayed around and, and asked questions. But when they began to understand Him, and they realize what they heard was so contrary to their own views, they couldn't tolerate it, and they would not accept it. One commentator wrote, This applies to our own day and to ourselves. Often when professing Christians criticize a true servant of God, one who is really giving out God's truth and complain that his teachings are hard. The real cause is not the difficulty of the doctrine, but rather the unwillingness of the people involved to accept what they hear. Perhaps it conflicts with their own views. Perhaps it is different from the traditions of their fathers. Many of these persons also copy the men of Christ's day in another way for they grumble among themselves rather than coming directly to Jesus Christ to state their difficulties. Well, in light of the reaction of the crowd, we can understand Jesus' question in the next verse. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Hmm? Do you take offense at this? I mean, Jesus knows the hearts of all men. And he knew in himself why they were grumbling. It's a clear indication here of his complete knowledge, his divine omniscience. These people couldn't deceive Jesus. They might have walked with him for a time, appeared to be his disciples. They might have taken their place in the synagogue, appearing to listen attentively and reverently while he taught. But he knew their hearts. They couldn't hide from him. And neither can men hide from him today. Because Jesus is not misled or deceived by outward religion. Jesus sees through all hypocrisy. I mean, there is nothing hidden from his eyes. And he knew these professed disciples were grumbling about this, and so he said to them, Do you take offense at this? You know, does this offend you? Or more literally, does this cause you to stumble? And the Greek word means to ensnare, to trap, to cause, to stumble. And it's often used in the New Testament to indicate a falling away into unbelief. And so Jesus says, does this offend you? I mean, does this cause you to take an offense, to to give up believing? I mean, no one ever spoke more perfectly or inoffensively than Jesus did with these disciples. But they took offense. And it was not the hardness of Jesus' sermon, but rather the hardness of their own hearts that caused this reaction on their part. Jesus said, does this offend you? And I want you to notice that he didn't apologize for what he said. Because he had said nothing to apologize for. Instead, what he does is ask a probing question in verse 62 notice. He says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And they took offense because Jesus said he had come down from heaven. So he asked them, well, what will you think if you see me ascend back to heaven? What if you see me ascending to heaven, clothed in glory, surrounded by the angels? Will that offend you? Now you've got a problem with me coming down from heaven. Well, what if you see me go back to heaven? What will you say then? Would that convince you of my heavenly origin? Would that that prove that I truly came down from heaven? And then he said in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What's this all about? Well, Jesus right here is confronting the root of the problem. These people were not born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, all of your religious learning and religious activities are incapable of getting you into heaven. You need the new birth. And Jesus explained further there in John chapter 3, verse 6. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And Jesus is teaching the same thing here in John 6. It is the Holy Spirit who imparts life to dead sinners. The flesh is of no help at all. And human religious effort will not get you into heaven. Never, ever. No way, no how. You can jump through all the religious hoops and rituals you want, and it will profit you nothing. It is the Spirit of God that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is powerless to give spiritual life. The flesh can never give itself new life. That comes only from God. As Paul said in Romans 7, in our flesh dwells no good thing. I mean, our flesh cannot get us into the kingdom of God. It is the Spirit who brings life and raises us from spiritual death. And Jesus then said in the rest of verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The crowd thought Jesus' words were hard, but actually he says, no, my words are spirit and life. His words are the product of life-giving Spirit, and and rightly understood, Jesus' words in this sermon are the source of life for the one who believes. I mean, The Spirit makes us alive through the Word of God, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to pierce our hearts, to change the very nature of our souls. It is by the word of God that you and I are rescued from spiritual nothingness and made alive to the things of God. I mean, Peter said, we have not been born again, or we have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, you cannot feed on Jesus without feeding on his words. And truly believing in Christ cannot be separated from truly believing his words. The words he said that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to impart new life to sinners so that they can understand it. And without spiritual life, those who hear Jesus' words cannot understand what he's saying, and thus his words are beyond their human comprehension and acceptance. And that was the problem with these people. Jesus' words are the source of life for the one who believes, but he says to them now in verse 64, notice, But there are some among you, or there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. In other words, of course what I've said to you is intolerable. Of course you're offended by it. It's all because you don't believe. And Jesus wasn't the least bit surprised or deceived by by their outward appearances. I mean, they might give the appearance of disciples. They might seem to be devoted to him, but he knew they didn't believe. And the issue was not a lack of information. Jesus did not say, you do not understand. He said, some of you do not believe. It was a lack of faith. Because not all have faith. Jesus knew from the beginning of his ministry when they began to follow him. But beyond that, he knew from eternity past who those were who did not believe. He knew who the false-hearted followers were. In fact, back in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts, because he knows everything in everyone's heart. It's the same here. Jesus knew who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, the supreme example of unbelief, Judas Iscariot. I mean, Jesus knows not only those who are his, but he also knows equally well, but in a different way, those who reject him. I mean, he knows everyone. He knows who believes and who does not believe. You see, Jesus was not going toward his God-appointed task with his eyes closed. No, his eyes were wide open. He knew exactly what was going on. Notice what Jesus says next. Again, we see that he refused to modify his teaching to accommodate their grumbling. Jesus made absolutely no attempt to remove or tone down the offense of the gospel. He refused to make it less offensive to their human pride. You know, he didn't say here, well, look, you know, let me back up and see if I can accommodate you. No, maybe, I, maybe I've been a, a bit too harsh or a little too demanding of you. Let me, let, me, let me see if I can make this a little more palatable for you. No. No, again, he doubled down on the truth. Look at verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's basically the same thing he said in in John 6.44. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So he's saying, you're, you're grumbling at my words? You don't believe, and here's why. As I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So don't think somehow it's all in your power to connect with God anytime you want, any way you want. You can't make yourself a true follower. You can't believe in me unto salvation and eternal life on your own. If you're ever going to come to me and believe in me, God has to open your hearts. I mean, you can't be my follower unless my Father grants it, unless he draws you, enables you, opens your mind, and gives you the power to come to me. The only way you can come to me is by the grace of God alone. But you see, as long as man remains confident of his own ability, without divine help to come to the Lord, he cannot and he will not come. He cannot and he will not believe. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person or the unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Well, they are folly to him or they're foolishness to him. And then Paul said, and he is not able to understand them because they, are not, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, in our natural state, we are unwilling and morally incapable of coming to Christ. And if the Father wants us to come, He must draw us to His beloved Son, which means when anyone comes to Christ, they have come because God has set His love upon them and drawn them to the Savior. I mean, we are saved by grace, and there is absolutely no place for boasting. It is absolutely by grace, and by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so Jesus knew that many, and in fact the vast majority of these disciples, were not believers. And he made it clear to them here that they couldn't come to him unless it were granted by the Father. And that was the final straw for many of them. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and what? No longer walked with him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, what Jesus said so provoked them that they turned back and no longer followed him. You say, well, what in the world is the matter with Jesus? I mean, didn't he want followers? Well, of course he did. He longed for followers, but they must come on his terms and not their own. I mean, Jesus was right that there were some who did not believe. And secondly, that no one can come unless it is granted him from the Father. And these disciples were themselves living proof of it as they turned and walked away. I mean, think, think of it. Just think with me. They had followed Jesus, come to him. Hailed him as the prophet, tried to make him king, looked for him and, and found him, listened to his word. But now, after hearing his word, they turn back. It's an expression with almost a, a military sound. And in the tense in the Greek, it indicates that this was not a momentary setback, but rather a decisive turning away. And the tense of the phrase, no longer walked with him, indicates their leaving was permanent. They decisively and permanently turned back and no longer walked with him. They went back to the things they had left behind. I mean, not only their their ordinary daily life, but also to their former way of thinking and living, intending never to return to Jesus. And, of course, by this they proved they were never true believers to begin with, and therefore not fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, what a contrast. What a contrast this was from the beginning of that day. Because on the beginning of that day, the crowds had crossed the sea and sought Jesus out. But now the many turned their backs on him and left him. Later, in his first epistle, the Apostle John tells us about some who had been among them and who left. He said in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He said they were among us, they were were of us in the sense that they were present with us bodily for a while, but they were not really of us. They didn't really have the same nature. They didn't have the the same life. They didn't have the same appreciation of the truth that we had. They they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They they went out from, from us, but they were not of us. Furthermore, he said, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And they stopped following. Just as a hidden cancer will often manifest itself visibly, In the same way, false discipleship starts off as a hidden motive, but eventually it will manifest itself. Because people drop out, and that's how it shows itself. They no longer walk with Him. And you know, the fact of the matter is, you can always get a crowd. If a crowd is what you want, you can always get a crowd. All you have to do is tell them that all their desires can be fulfilled, all their ambitions realized. But you see, that's never what Jesus offers, never. But when that is what you offer, oh, you'll draw people, you'll draw the crowds, what you will draw are false disciples, terrorists. I mean, they're drawn by a false message that appeals to their fleshly lusts and desires. Why do you think people like Joel Osteen have such a large following? What he's offering appeals to the flesh. And then plus, when there's a crowd, a crowd draws a crowd. A crowd attacks a crowd. It's the mob mentality. I mean, they, they come for what they can get. Just like this crowd. They were coming for the food. They come for what they can get for fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, or whatever. But it's all self-centered and self-focused. They're coming for what they can get. And they're also drawn by, by the prospect of the supernatural. And so they come for the show. You know, they come to enjoy the music, but they have no desire for genuine worship. And they have no desire or no interest in the bread of life. I mean, they want many things from Jesus. They want relevance. They want fulfillment. But they don't want to surrender to the truth and submit their lives to Him. And so eventually, when you preach the message Jesus preached, and they begin to realize what Jesus demands. Their life and their all. When they come to realize what it is to follow him, they choke on that. And so like this crowd, they're gone. They're gone. And while many may wander in enthusiastically in the direction of Jesus, only a few will be found to be truly dependent upon Jesus. I mean, not that Jesus wanted few. Or spoke to few. Because he spoke to many. But only a few believed. You see, that's something that we forget, especially in America. It is always the few and the many. I mean, get it straight from the words of Jesus himself Genuine biblical Christianity will not be a mass movement unless it's in a time of revival. But generally speaking, genuine Christianity will not be a mass movement. you say, well, how can you say that? Well, Jesus made this clear all through the Gospels. For example, in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. Few. It's always been the few and the many. You see, the mathematics of Jesus' kingdom are different from the math of the contemporary church in America. America. The contemporary church in America is about the many, and the issue with Jesus is the few. I mean, All the people in the crowd had seen the same miracles, heard the same message, but the majority left and never came back. And only a handful, only 12 remained, and one of them was a traitor. You see, loved ones, only a small percentage of the seed that is sown ever springs to life and bears good fruit. I and mean, we see this in the parable of the soil. And so our Lord would have been an absolute failure in the eyes of many in the church today who are so into numbers. And it would have us believe that we should never say or do anything to make people, namely unbelievers, feel comfortable when they come to church. But I would lovingly suggest to you that when people come to church and hear the word of God, God wants us to be uncomfortable. He wants unbelievers especially to be uncomfortable. Why? Because he wants to persuade them that they are not what they think they are. He wants to show them there is nothing in them to make them acceptable to him. Not because he is mean and unkind and unloving. I mean, nothing would be, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, quite the opposite. Because in His infinite mercy and grace He wants to bring them to the place where they say Woe is me, I am undone, who can help me? And then the gospel comes and says God and only God And and this is what He has done for you Through His Son Jesus Christ He has provided a Savior for you and His Son Come to Jesus You see, Jesus refused to compromise or to soften the message to accommodate the multitude of false disciples. He knew their hearts. They revealed themselves to be just what Jesus knew they were, false disciples. They had the name of follower, but not the nature or the heart of a true follower. And for a time, they looked like the real deal. But then they turned away and revealed what they really and truly were. You see, what they wanted, Jesus would not give. And what Jesus offered, they would not receive. You see, the New Testament is clear that one of the marks of a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus, is that you believe and embrace his teaching no matter how difficult and how humbling it may be. A true Christian says, Lord, every word you speak is true, and I believe it. I don't always fully understand it, but I believe it as what it is. It is your very words, the words of the true and the living God. Well, this was a real crisis. I mean, not only have the masses left it, But even many, the majority of his disciples, those who had been following him and were regularly associated with him. But in the midst of this crisis, this this growing rejection of himself and his message, Jesus didn't panic. No, he remained calm and collected, if you will. He knew there were many who did not believe, but he also knew that all that the Father did give to him would come to him. We don't know exactly how many disciples Jesus had before this sermon, but afterward, it appears he was left with only the twelve. Just the twelve. And in verses 67 to 71, we see now that Jesus' sermon produced a diametrically opposing response in them. You know, I can just picture Jesus as the multitudes were leaving, his eyes You know, must have been all of those false disciples as they left that he loved them. He loved them. But then he turned to the 12. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? Why does Jesus ask this question? Well, not because he didn't know, he knew their hearts. The question was asked for their sake, not his. It was a challenge. He wanted them to articulate a response. Surely you're not going away. Surely you're not going to identify with those who are turning away. Are you? I mean, he's putting them on the spot. You know, what about you? Where do you stand in relation to me and, and my gospel? Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to be with with the popular crowd? Or do you want to remain with what outwardly appears to be a, a failing, crumbling cause? You know, have they entirely made up their minds to remain with him regardless of the fact the masses have left him? Including many of his regular followers? And their answer would give evidence to the work of God's grace in their hearts. Do you want to go away as well? You don't want to leave also, do you? I also think what we see here is Jesus exhibiting his true humanity. I mean, truly he is God. I mean, he knows every heart, but he's also flesh and blood, and he feels the pain of rejection. In Luke 19, you know the story as Jesus was approaching the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. This is what we read. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus' humanity is real. He is fully God, but He is also fully man. His humanity is real. He is not a stoic, unfeeling man. I mean, he wept for the people of Jerusalem. In the garden of of Gethsemane, he wept, and, and God sent an angel to strengthen and comfort him in his time of need. And here in John 6, no doubt Jesus feels the pain of rejection, and he's asking his own, you know, will you leave me too? And Peter answers, but of course he did. It's Peter, right? Peter answers, I mean, you can almost guarantee it would be Peter. And in answering, Peter uses the plural showing that he was speaking for all of the disciples, though in reality not for Judas. But of course, Peter didn't know that. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't deny Jesus' words were heart. Rather, he said, Jesus' words were words of eternal life, referring to what the Lord had said in verse 63. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Lord, where would we go? We're not going to leave, Lord. Where would we go? And there's no one else to go to. There's no one else who satisfies the longing of the heart. You, Lord, and you alone have the words of eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, anyone who has any conceivable alternative to Jesus Christ is not a Christian. Peter knew there was no alternative. Lord, where or to whom would we go? There's nowhere else for us to go. For Peter and the others, having come to Jesus, that kind of thing was absolutely unthinkable. Let me ask you something. Is it unthinkable to you? Or would you consider turning back? You say, I'm I'm so discouraged right now, I think I just might. And are you ever tempted to leave? I certainly have been. And I don't know how many times these words of Peter have echoed through my mind. Where could I go? To whom would I go? I mean, where would you go? Would you go back to your former way of life? I mean, you know what your life was like before you came to faith in Christ. Would you go back to that? Would you turn to philosophy? You know, would you turn to psychology? Would you find the words of eternal life there? Would you turn to materialism? You know, money and and possessions? I mean, all of those things will ultimately fail if you turn to them. They're all passing away. Would you turn to a false religion? I mean, what are you going to do? Go to Muhammad and join the jihad? I mean, you're certainly not going to find the words of life there. Or in Hinduism, or Buddhism, or the New Age, or any of the other isms and wasms. I mean, you won't find the words of eternal life and all the pleasures this world has to offer. If you want the words of eternal life, there's only one place or one person you can go to. The one who gave his life that we might live. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then look what Peter says in verse 69. And we have believed. We have believed. Well, what did they believe? Well, we, And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what separates true disciples from the false, genuine saving faith. And I want you to notice something. He said, we have believed and have come to know. I mean, the terms are roughly synonymous, but the order is absolutely essential. He says, first we believe, and then we come to know. The world says seeing is believing, but God's Word tells us believing is the way to seeing. But it's only after we believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord that we will come to the full assurance of knowing that He is the Holy One of God. Hey, Peter and the other disciples, they they didn't know everything. I mean, we know that. They didn't fully understand. In fact, most of the time they didn't. They didn't fully understand the teaching of Jesus this moment. But by the grace of God, they had believed and come to know that Jesus alone had the words of eternal life. That he was the Holy One of God. That is, the one set apart by God the Father to be the Savior of the world. The only Savior. They knew that God's salvation was to be found in Christ and in Him alone and they weren't going anywhere. To whom shall we go? I mean, you you alone have the words of eternal life. But the chapter doesn't end there. John tells us something else. He tells us that even among the twelve, there was a traitor. Even among the hand-picked twelve, there was a false disciple. And Jesus knows that Peter's confession doesn't represent the inner convictions of every one of the twelve. He knew there was one exception. And so that Judas would never be able to say that he was not warned, and so the other disciples would never be able to think that Jesus was taken by surprise, Jesus answered them in verse 70. Notice, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. So Jesus corrected Peter. That happened a lot. Jesus corrected Peter. You know, he shouldn't say so confidently that all 12 were true believers. And it is true that the Lord had chosen the 12 disciples, but one of them, Jesus said, was a devil. There was one in the group who did not share Peter's views concerning the Savior. And so he says, Peter, you're right, except that there is one of you who has not come to believe and know. And then we read in, in verse 71, this John said of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Though Judas didn't object to Peter's statement outwardly, Jesus knew his heart. I mean, Peter was certain that all the apostles were believers, which shows how convincing Judas really was. But Jesus knew. And for three years, Judas hid his unbelief from others, from the disciples, and all who saw him, except Jesus. He hid his unbelief, as it were, within the church. But he was was a counterfeit at heart. And like the other false disciples, he was offended by Jesus' teaching. He was offended by the cross. And he betrayed Jesus. I mean, consider this. I mean, here is the Lord Jesus himself, the real prince of preachers. And most all of his congregation has abandoned him. And not only that, even among the ham-picked group he had chosen, there was a traitor, another one, who would not only abandon him, but betray him in the most despicable way, with a kiss And for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Even within the 12, there was a traitor. Isn't that very sobering? J.C. Ryle said this. If ever there was a man who had great privileges and opportunities, that man was Judas Iscariot. A chosen disciple, a constant companion of Christ, a witness of his miracles, a hearer of his sermons, a commissioned preacher of his kingdom, a fellow friend of Peter, James, and John, it would be impossible to imagine a more favorable position for a man's soul. Yet if anyone ever fell hopelessly into hell and made shipwreck at last for eternity, that man was Judas Iscariot. The character of that man must have been black indeed of whom our Lord could say he is a devil. Ryle continues, let us settle it firmly in our minds that the possession of religious privileges alone is not enough to save our souls. It is neither place nor light nor company nor opportunities but grace that man needs to make him a Christian. With grace we may serve God in the most difficult position. Without grace we may live in the full sunshine of Christ's countenance and yet like Judas be miserably cast away Let us never rest until we have grace reigning in our souls. Grace is to be had for the asking. There is one sitting at the right hand of God who has said, Ask and it shall be given to you. The Lord Jesus is more willing to give grace than man is to seek it. And if men have it not, it is because they do not ask. You see, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ will either offend you or it will be the sweetest thing you have ever heard. It will either offend your pride, or you will hear it and say, thank God that He didn't abandon me and leave me to myself. Instead, He sent me a Savior, a Redeemer, a Helper, and a Friend. He sent one who loved me and gave Himself for me. Is the gospel sweet to you? Cody Bacham told a story, and I don't know if I can remember it correctly, but I'm going to try. He said there was a man who took his son one day out into the strawberry fields. And as they were walking through the strawberry fields, they stopped and picked a ripe strawberry, and, and the boy ate it, and it was so sweet, so good. But then they didn't go to the strawberry fields anymore. Rather, they began to eat strawberries in the form of jam preserves, jelly. Of course, it was sugared, and that was good. But then the strawberries were were taken to factories, and there they were processed even more and put into things like Pop-Tarts. And he enjoyed those. But then from uh, the factory, they went into the lab. And there they synthesized the strawberry flavor and using chemicals and artificial flavorings, they made strawberry drinks and it went into strawberry slushies and the boy loved strawberry slushies. That was his favorite and he kept drinking those strawberry slushies. Oh, he loved them. And then one day later, they went out into the strawberry fields again. And he picked a berry and he ate it. He didn't like it one bit. He didn't want the real thing. He wanted the artificial thing that he had come to love. You see, these people in John 6, they wanted the slushies. And they thought that's what they were going to get when they saw Jesus doing the miracles and providing the food and thought maybe he was going to overthrow the Romans. But Jesus gave them the real faith. He gave them the genuine gospel. They had no taste for it. They didn't want it. They didn't like it. They wouldn't have it. I'm afraid that there are many people in the church today, especially in this country, who have been feeding on nothing but strawberry slushies, superficial religion, superficial gospel message, which is not the gospel at all. And then when they hear the real gospel, it is not only not sweet to them, they want nothing to do with it. They don't want the real because they've been brought up on the false, And I'm wondering if there's some here this morning and you've been believing a lie, you've been living on the strawberry slushies. And when you hear the real gospel, when you hear the truth of God's word, you don't like it. I, I hope not, I pray not. Is the gospel sweet to you? And if it's not, you need to ask yourself, why not? You see, it's one thing to have the name of a disciple, to have the name Christian. But it's something altogether different to have the nature in the heart of a Christian. And the nature of a Christian is that when all else is said and done, They will look into the face of Jesus and say, Lord, to whom would we go? And they can no more seriously think about abandoning Jesus than they can stop breathing because he is the one who is life and he has come from heaven to give us life. And so how will you respond? How will you respond? In response to Jesus' message, some people left. Others who truly believed stayed. And some, like Judas, stayed but tried to use Jesus for their own personal gain to see what they could get. And today, there are many people who turn away from Jesus because they're offended. They're offended when they begin to understand his real message. And others pretend to follow going to church for status, for approval of family and friends, or, you know, business contacts. It's a good place to network, and, you know, good for the kids, and all of that. We have only two choices for responding to Jesus. Only two. We either believe in him, or we reject him. And so again, my question is, How will you respond? How will you respond? And the proper response is best expressed in the words of the prodigal. I will arise and go to my father. I have no doubt that there are some here this morning who do not believe. You see, people don't come to Jesus because it's a good idea. It may have been a good idea to come to the service, but it will never be a good idea to come to Jesus. And no one comes to Jesus because it's a good idea. People come to Jesus because they have been awakened by the Spirit of God to their utter sinfulness and the absolute peril that they're in. They realize they're helpless to do anything to make themselves right with God and acceptable to God. And they come out of absolute necessity. They come not because it's a good idea, but rather because it truly is a matter of life and death. And so, how will you respond? You know, in your helplessness, come to Him, come to Christ who saves the helpless. And in your guilt and in condemnation, come to him who removes guilt and condemnation. Come to Christ, trust him, receive him as your own personal Lord and Savior. Come to him. Listen, life is short. I learned on my way home of a gentleman that I know. We're not we're not close friends, we're acquaintances, know each other from the gym. Uh, working out together over the years, saw him just last week. Christian man, I think I already said that. Well, he left the gym, was it Friday, Bart? Last Tuesday? Yeah, he left the gym, or this Tuesday, this past Tuesday, left the gym, and he was in good shape. Left the gym and died of a massive heart attack as he was driving home. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause. Christ the cure. Isn't he? Christ is the cure. He is the only cure for sin. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we find salvation and life eternal. And may God enable you to come to Christ. May God enable you to come to Christ who is who saves the unable. Come to Christ. Let's stand and pray. Of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.